Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's I Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I will be speaking with Joanna L. Hart, M.D., to discuss her article published in the September Critical Care Medicine entitled, Perceptions of Organ Donation After Circulatory Determination of Death Among Critical Care Physicians and Nurses, a national survey. Hart is a pulmonary and critical care fellow at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Hart. really enjoyed reading your manuscript. I think it's a, a very interesting topic uh, and very informative, and I think in some regards uh, reassuring uh, for the ICU community and um, patients and families, reading some of your credentials mm-hmm. uh, that uh, you and Dr. Halpern are part of uh, what's called the FIELDS program over at Penn, and mm-hmm. I was curious to hear a little bit more about that program. So the FIELDS program, FIELDS stands for Fostering Improvement in End-of-Life Decision Science, and it's a relatively new program that's designed to more formally look at end-of-life decision science, particularly as it pertains to the ICU, but not only in that capacity. It's intended to look at end-of-life decision science both from patients' and families' perspectives in addition to um, clinicians' perspectives. And so there are plans to engage family and uh, patients? Yes, for example, there's an ongoing project right now on advanced directives in outpatients, for example, so it's really intended to get an investment from all of the stakeholders that are involved in end-of-life decision science and how we make those decisions and how we can decide whether we're providing quality end-of-life care in those situations. It sounds like a wonderful program. must be very nice to be involved. Your manuscript dealt with uh, organ donation mm-hmm. uh, after uh, uh, cardiac death. Mm-hmm. And I think for perhaps some of the listeners, uh, residents and fellows, and even reading your paper, there's a, there's a probably a sounds like a lack of uh, formal education regarding main ways in which organ procurement take place uh, in this country. So I was hoping you could elaborate on uh, the definition of both uh, donation after cardiac death and donation after neurologic death. Sure. I think most people are familiar with donation after neurologic determination of death or donation after brain death, where a death declaration is made prior to evaluation for procurement of the patient's organs. In contrast, donation after circulatory determination of death, which in our study, which was the first large study that looked at critical care providers nationwide, only about half of them had ever received formal education in this type of organ donation. And this is a situation in which the patients generally have either very severe neurologic injury but don't meet criteria for brain death which is less common, but they still could also have end-stage, for example, pulmonary disease and are very dependent on high ventilator settings, for example. And in this situation, the patient is more or less expected to pass quickly when the life-sustaining treatments are withdrawn. The intention is to provide as close to identical end-of-life care as possible, the main difference being that the withdrawal of those life-sustaining therapies occurs in the operating room, generally, as opposed to in the ICU room. And so that leads to some concern about how that end-of-life care takes place. Once those life-sustaining therapies are withdrawn in the operating room, there's a surgical team on standby. The patient is allowed to have treatments for symptoms just as they are in the ICU room, so narcotics for shortness of breath or air hunger, for example. If the patient passes in an appropriate amount of time to sustain the organs for later transplantation, the declaration of death is made in the operating room, there's a brief waiting period, and then the surgical team comes in to do the procurement. So you've actually touched on uh, several of the 
points that make it sometimes uh, perhaps more challenging uh, than organ procurement uh, after neurologic death in that mentioning uh, trying to make the withdrawal of life-sustaining therapies identical to as if there were no organ procurement to take place, but that takes place in the operating room. You allude to this in your manuscript as well, but some potential conflict of interest with the treatment team. And also, uh, you mentioned this in the manuscript as well, and I, I've uh, seen this in practice where the patient doesn't expire uh, in short enough time to yes. allow for organ procurement to take place. I, I have found that to be uh, potentially an uncomfortable situation to be in. It is. I think a lot of providers have hesitation in participating, and they use that as sort of the defense in our study, the majority, I will say, felt that it did not provide, a, it did not create a conflict of interest and that they should participate in management of these organ donors. But sort of anecdotally, when people talk about it, they talk about sort of these very uncomfortable situations down in an operating room. We like to have end of life done in as controlled an environment as possible. One of the benefits of organ donation is that it provides something positive out of a tragic situation, as I'm sure that we all appreciate. Um, for families, it can create this sort of legacy effect that even though their loved one has died, they died as a hero, providing someone else with an opportunity to go on. When that is our intention, and then we fail to provide that to families, I think there can be sort of an additional concern that we're, we're devastating them further by failing to deliver on this potential promise that we've made. You know, thank you for also highlighting some of the uh, positive aspects um, of the process. Uh, and I, I just wanted to comment, you know, one of my pet peeves is uh, the language uh, in medicine, but particularly around uh, end-of-life uh, conversations, especially your use, uh, for instance, withdrawal of life-sustaining therapies is uh, certainly an, an appropriate way to describe the process and conversation. Far too often I hear uh, in various discussions and even in a recent journal article the term uh, withdrawal of care, a study called withdrawal of care in the uh, uh, surgical ICU, I believe it was, and really feel quite impelled to make that, that comment and, and also to, uh, to thank you for very appropriate terminology. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, your, the impetus uh, for this study and what you were trying to look at? Sure. So in an effort to expand the pool of potential organ donors and organs available for transplantation, there's been a recent push to include some of these donors after circulatory determination of death. But until this study was done, there have only been very limited investigations into what critical care providers perceive the major issues with this um, type of practice to be. Drawing from the prior studies that have been done, which have been small, we looked at particularly the impact on, of, on end-of-life care as well as the potential for conflict of interest. But even more broadly than that, we wanted to know whether or not critical care providers felt that this was a meaningful practice to participate in, which I will say, again, the majority of critical care providers do think that this is a practice that they should participate in, that these are donors that they should be managing and that it doesn't generally cause a conflict of interest. Only about 15% of critical care physicians and nurses felt that it created conflict for them. So you surveyed uh, both physicians and nurses, that, that's correct? Yes, the physician group was academic physicians. Um, it was critical care providers. It was not limited to um, medical critical care. It included anesthesia critical care, surgical critical care, as well as medical critical care. And the nurses were all critical care nurses drawn from 
um, a critical care nursing network that's nationwide as well. That's the AACN, is that mm-hmm. right? The, uh, yeah, I was curious about the, the surveying of only academic uh, intensivists and uh, if that was uh, intentional and perhaps where that database or... Uh, it was a database that had been previously created um, that was a national database um, that Dr. Halpern and some of the other researchers on his team had created in the um, time that, around the time that the survey was conducted. Um, And so that was um, why it was limited to academic physicians. Although I will say that it's telling, some of the data that we collected is telling, because even in academic centers that are obviously potentially more motivated to transplant because they could be potentially transplant centers um, and, you know, are thought to be sort of on the cutting edge, again, only 50% of physicians in those institutions had ever had formal education in this type of organ donation. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. And uh, I'm trying to remember, did you uh, ask about what percent uh, had actually uh, participated in uh, donation after cardiac death? Yes, um, and many physicians had never participated in any of this type of organ donation, um, and it was relatively small numbers for the majority of the physicians and nurses. Uh, and you, you talked about uh, a, a majority feeling they wanted to be part of the process. Was that looking at the the process of uh, decision-making or a process of the actual withdrawal of life-sustaining therapies? Participating. It, we asked them whether or not they felt that they should be participating in this type of organ donation. Um, so it was the sort of hands-on participation in management. And was there a difference between um, nurses and physicians? On those numbers, it was pretty similar. Again, on role conflict in terms of whether or not they perceived a role conflict as they participated or thought about participating if they had not had that experience before. Again, the majority felt that it did not cause a role conflict, and the numbers were about the same for both physicians and nurses. Where the physicians and nurses really separated was on their perception of -of end-of-life care. Again, if you have a chance to read the study itself, they were really given vignettes, clinical vignettes, where they were asked to respond to these questions in relation to a particular patient that we had sort of proposed as a potential patient um, to be receiving this type of organ donation or uh, participating in this type of organ donation as a donor. And where the nurses really differed from the physicians was on um, the end-of-life care. So we asked them, would this type of organ donation have the potential to improve end-of-life care? And nurses were much more positive about that than physicians. Um, again, we, t- we talked a little bit about how it might improve end-of-life care such that they have this legacy effect or they have this ability to have something good come from something negative. But there are also potential implications for having negative impact on end-of-life care, such as proximity of family in the operating room as care is being withdrawn, the transportation back and forth from the ICU um, and just having it be a setting that we have less control over and where the focus is for those moments on providing end-of-life care, but more globally, it has another motivation as well, and that is to have the patient in a setting where if the the patient passes in a period that makes them um, eligible for this type of organ donation, that the resources are already in place to help that happen, um, which is not something that we normally have to coordinate when we're doing end-of-life care for our patients. To be specific, the, the survey asked whether or not they felt that 
end-of-life care could be improved. was improved. Right, which we, we think is actually one of the limitations of our survey because it, it meant the sort of equivalent end-of-life care would not be addressed by that question. Um, we really asked whether or not this would improve end-of-life care. But a higher percentage of nurses felt that it might yes. improve uh, end-of-life care versus those that, versus the physicians. Mm-hmm. Example, exactly. Uh, and were you able to look at that in terms of folks that had participated in um, donation uh, after cardiac death versus those who had not? So generally speaking, those who had participated in this and received formal education in this responded more positively towards this type of organ donation, which is another reason why formal education in this type of organ donation is so important um, if we're going to pursue this as a practice in our field. Something else that had an impact was the role of the um, organ um, donor designation on the driver's license. Organ donor designation on a driver's license is not informed consent, but it implies this sense of empowering the patient and giving the patient autonomy in their final moments when they're potentially not able to communicate with us. And in that way, it could potentially make providers more likely to feel that they were not engaging in a role conflict, improving that patient's end-of-life care, because we have some identification of patient preferences, which I think we search for as critical care providers when we frequently have limited or no access to that information. So even though there have been plenty of articles published that show that, you know, the organ donor designation is not the same as informed consent, particularly in this type of organ donation when there may be pre-mortem interventions, such as additional catheters or so forth being placed, but that while it's not true informed consent, it's some sense of what the patient's preferences would be. In one vignette, the patient had a donor designation on their driver's license, and that impacted the sense of comfort on the part of physicians and nurses? Mm-hmm. Again, generally, physicians felt that end-of-life care could be improved more in patients who had that organ donor designation. So each each um, provider was presented with a vignette, and there were two moving parts to it that changed, and then we controlled and, and were able to analyze for the impact of, of two things. One was whether or not the the patient had an organ donor designation on their driver's license. And the second was on whether or not the patient's family member, as opposed to the organ procurement organization, brought up the idea of organ donation. In terms of whether or not the patient's family versus organ procurement brought up organ donation, we didn't find there was any difference in the perception um, of practice. There was no impact of that on the results in any way. However, there was an impact on whether or not patients, on whether or not providers felt that organ procurement organizations respected the patient. So that did have an impact. And so that's a potential area for continued growth as well. Although most providers responded that they did feel their local OPO um, respected patients on the order of 80 to 90 percent. So the vast majority of providers, it sounded like, had a fairly positive relationship with their OPO. It's still an area for potential improvement. So mm-hmm. there was some degree that if the organ procurement agency was the one requesting donation, that clinicians were less inclined to think that the organ procurement agency was doing that in a respectful way? Right. So physicians felt OPOs, whether or not they respected a patient, would have an impact on whether or not quality end-of-life care was provided. Meaning that if the OPO respects the potential organ donor, we can potentially provide better end-of-life care than if they did not, which makes sense. And again, this is a very delicate situation, so I think, speaking sort of outside the results of the study, I think that providers are looking for everyone to be very invested in the patient 
as a patient and not just as an organ donor. Absolutely. And then you also looked at how those changes in the vignettes influence whether or not there was a perceived conflict as well? Yes. So in conflict of interest, nurses, we weren't able to identify anything specific with the nurses, but again, for conflict of interest for physicians, the tendency was that if they had more experience in ICUs, more experience with this type of organ donor, they were more likely to believe that it did not cause a role conflict. Turned another way, essentially, more experience tended to mean they were able to provide both roles to the patient, both a critical care provider as well as someone who was also invested in organ donation. Was there any sense that there was more conflict if it was the vignette where the organ procurement agency is suggesting donation versus the family requesting? No, again, that did not have any impact on the study results at all. But with role conflict, that um, organ donor card was important for physicians. Again, surmising that the physicians were thinking this was sort of in line with the patient's wishes. What should we take away? What would you say the implications are for uh, the future of this practice? What further types of uh, studies do you think you'd be looking for down the road? I think the biggest take-home points are that this type of organ donation is accepted by the critical care community. And I think the one big remaining question is how do we manage end-of-life care within the context of this practice that we're accepting? End-of-life care was the one area that physicians did not seem as comfortable. And I think that that's true anecdotally as well. I think, again, it's hard to define quality end-of-life care. Retrospectively, it's difficult to ask a patient, obviously, who's just passed if we did a good job or not. So I think we rely very heavily on patients' families to tell us um, their perception as well as the providers who are involved. And I think that's really the next big area of research. How can we provide good quality end-of-life care through the use of um, protocols and potential simulations um, to simulate those experiences for providers to practice coordinating end-of-life care um, to, you know, in the operating room and in that situation that we're potentially less comfortable with. Um, and then talking to patients' families and after the fact, trying to get as good an assessment as we can on whether or not we did a good job and what could have been improved. And it's, again, a very delicate situation, but I think those are sort of the next big areas um, to see how we can make people more comfortable with the end-of-life component that's inherent in donation after circulatory determination of death. Yeah, I'm not aware of any, any literature looking at uh, family interpretation or uh, impression of quality of end-of-life care in this situation, or really, I guess, literature is scant uh, all over in terms of quality of end-of-life care. I don't know of any large studies looking. I think there have been a couple of um, very small qualitative surveys of families, um, but there's not been any sort of larger sense. Uh, well, thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed talking to you and, again, really enjoyed uh, reading your manuscript. Thank you. It's, again, my pleasure to be here. Well, this concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more episodes or subscribe at iTunes by searching SCCM. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Experience the true beauty of the Caribbean at SCCM's 42nd Critical Care Congress to be held January 19th through 23rd, 2013 in San Juan, Puerto Rico. From the breathtaking sunsets and shimmering beaches to the ancient caves and cool, mountainous, subtropical rainforests, Puerto Rico provides a vast canvas of diverse environments and unrivaled natural wonders. 
surrender to the charm of Island Live at the 2013 Congress, where more than 4,000 critical care professionals will come together to advance the mission of providing the best possible care to critically ill and injured patients. Register today at www.sccm.org congress. Michael S. Weinstein, M.D., F.A.C.S., F.C.C.P., serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the Surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.